when when we steward power like Jesus did, when we um, John thirteen, Jesus knowing that the Father had entrusted everything to His hands, removed His robe and began washing their feet. When we exercise power like that, people actually are moved by that. Do you want to do you want to continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with the cops? We're in a time where pastors across much of the Western world are really struggling. We're also in a time where revelations of the abuse of power, sexual impropriety, and a host of related scandals are undermining the credibility of the Christian church and the pastors who lead them. And so we're hosting a series of conversations here on the podcast to try to understand what's going on with pastors and what faithful pastors can do to shepherd their congregations in this time. Today, we're talking with pastor and author Glenn Packiam about his new book, The Resilient Pastor, Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World. Stay with us. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Join your hosts, Brad Edwards and Bryce Hales, as they help you navigate a shifting cultural context with thoughtfulness and hope. Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. Today we are continuing the mini-series that we're calling Bait and Switch, the state of pastors and how ministry just changed, with some reports indicating that as many as 50% of pastors in the U.S. are at or heading towards burnout. We are trying to understand why that is and what, if anything, can be done to help. So whether you are a pastor or you like pastors, or maybe you're even skeptical about pastors and the Christian church in general, we hope this series is helpful to you. I am Bryce Hales, and today I am without my faithful and far more intelligent co-host and partner in crime, Brad Edwards, coronavirus two years in, finally caught up with him, and he is in recovery mode. Uh, But today I'm excited to be talking with Glenn Packiam. Glenn, uh, you are, gosh, many, many details to your um, bio here, Um, but maybe most relevantly for today, you're the lead pastor of New Life Downtown in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and you're also the author of a book that caught my attention a couple of months ago, The Resilient Pastor is the name of the book that you wrote. Uh, with the Barna Group, you're involved in a lot of other activities with with Barna, it sounds like, and the Resilient Pastors Initiative. Um, so thanks so much for joining us today. Really excited to talk with you. Hey, Bryce. Great to meet you. Great to be on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, Glenn, you've been a pastor for nearly two decades. Um, you also over, have... Yeah, 20, 22 years. 22 years. Okay. So you you are a pastor. You also um, you have a foot in the academy. You have a PhD. You're uh, you, you teach um, a few different places. So you sort of have this like um, insider and outsider perspective on pastoral ministry in American culture. And I think as such, you're likely uh, to be able to speak in a in a unique way to this moment in time about the pressure that pastors are under and that, that the church is facing. What led you to write this book? I mean, other than I'm assuming an invitation from David Kinnaman. 
Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah that that was it. It was the invitation from David Kinnaman. I, you know, Bryce, I would never be presumptuous enough to say I think I'm going to write a book telling pastors how to, uh, you know, handle their their leadership and their calling. But I do have a passion for the church and have a, a deep passion for pastors. And my kind of my you know my the research methodology that I used when I was doing my doctoral work in the UK. Um, was a blend of situational analysis and theological reflection. So when David Kinnaman and I were talking and he approached me with this idea right before the pandemic, um, it, it sounded like something that I really would, you know, would enjoy the kind of using uh, partnering with Barna's team and their ability to get a snapshot of insight into what's going on and then trying to find wisdom from the scriptures and from church history. And so I began outlining these eight challenges, four for the pastor and four for the church. And then shortly after after that, even before we kind of got out of the proposal process, I think uh, the pandemic broke. And so it, it really became clear that either I got tricked into saying yes by the Lord <laughs> or, 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 you know, or there really is something uh, urgent about this subject. And uh, and I, I'm, I'm at a church in Colorado Springs, Bryce, that you mentioned. New Life Downtown is part of New Life Church. I've been here 22 years. Six years into my time, the founding senior pastor had a pretty public moral failure. Mm -hmm. 13 months after that, there was a gunman that came on our campus, opened fire, took the lives of two teenage girls. Tragedy upon tragedy. And so... I, I, I'm not an expert, but as we like to say around here, we are experienced having gone through some of these challenges. Mm. And I, I think my hope is, yeah, to offer a little bit of, of my story, but really to mine the scriptures and mine church history for wisdom to say, look, there are some unique challenges from our moment, but but we're not alone in this. The global church, the historic mm. church, we've been through uh, many, many dark days before. Hmm. Okay. Wow. There, I mean, so many things that you uh, mentioned there that uh, I want to, I can't even decide where to follow up, but let, uh, let's, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. Okay. Let me just ask about resilience. Let's, let's kind of start with the title. Um, I love the word resilience. I, I mean, I think the concept of resilience is so helpful because especially as Americans, we tend to think maybe by default in terms of successfulness um, and then maybe we move from there to faithfulness and maybe, maybe we're convinced we shouldn't just be thinking about how are we mm. counting the metrics of success, but, but faithfulness then can get to this place of just kind of hold on and grit it out. Uh, and so, f uh, resilience is such a, is such a beautiful concept mm. as a goal, as a category. I, I think about, you know, resilience, like a muscle, it has to be put under pressure to grow, it has to be broken down in order to actually grow back stronger. So how did you come to think about resilience as the key for pastoral health? Yeah. You know, what I don't want people to do is to hear that word resilience and kind of what you said about, you know, just grit it out, you know, and and and, and kind of keep a stiff upper lip and gut it out because it almost sounds like you can do it. Just be tough, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I think for the Christian, resilience right. is a work of grace. It's it's some it's the result of the Holy Spirit working in us. And in a very real sense, it's the kind of it's the image that I get from Romans 8 when Paul says the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead 
will quicken you, will, will is alive in you, and will quicken your mortal bodies. And so resurrection is the ultimate kind of thing that we're all hoping for and waiting for in the end of the end of it all. But now daily our inner being is being renewed, and that kind of renewal is mm. resilience. But let me give another picture here, Bryce. Um, I, I listened to the late former chief rabbi, um, Lord Jonathan Sachs, talk. He was a former chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, and he talked about going to his doctor for like a health checkup in his 60s or something. And the doctor had all these sensors strapped on him and put him on the treadmill, you know, and and had him running, you know. And he says, oh, Doc, what are, you, what are you measuring? Are you testing mm-hmm. to see how fast I can run? And the doc's like, no, I'm, I'm not testing that. Just keep running. And then, and then he says, are you testing to see how far I can run? He says, no, 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 I'm not, te- just shh, just keep running, you know? And and he runs and, you know, the doc increases the incline, the speed and all this stuff. And finally he gets off and he's huffing and puffing and, and he finally, you know, calms down. He says, doc, what were you testing? And he says, I was measuring how quickly you return to your normal heart rate. And, and Rabbi Sachs was talking about how it's mm. so important that we recognize that one of the measures of health is recovery. It's not just, it's not just mm. that you never, you, you know, health is not that you never get sick. Health is not even just that you're well all the time. Uh, health is the sense of how well do you recover? How well do you recalibrate? And so when I think of resilience, I think of that recovery, that renewal, that sense of being recalibrated mm. to what in the book of Revelation uh, we, we, is called our first love, is referred to as our first love. How, how well do we return to our first love? How well do we recover and reorient towards true north? That's, I think, resilience when, uh, for the mm. Christian. Yeah, I mean, that's beautiful. I, I, I mean, even just culturally, it seems like so much of the goal can be like avoid the hard thing. of <laughs> Just mm-hmm. we want everything going up and to the right, but that's not really the way real life functions. And so yeah. real life has to be about not just avoiding anything bad, but being able to bounce back and to recover when, when, when life really happens. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, that's it. Like we, we sort of think, and even for pastors, maybe, uh, maybe kind of the expectation was, well, I'm not going to really experience anything this challenging. And and certainly none of us knew what the last two years were going to be. Uh, And I understand it. It's been tough. It's been difficult. And, and some people have, have experienced it far worse than others, but you're right. The, the goal there is not to say, goodness, I've experienced trouble. What have I done wrong? Or maybe there's something wrong with me. No, Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. So it's not, uh, I, I wouldn't want pastors to be discouraged because they've been stressed or they've been anxious or they've been you know, down. That's okay. But now how do we come alongside each other and help us return, recalibrate, recover? I'm curious about, I mean, you, you said that you began working on this project right before the pandemic. Uh, I'm assuming that some of the research and data that you, that you report was being collected during the pandemic. I mean, do you have a sense for how, yeah. how, I mean, it was obviously it was on uh, Barna's radar before the pandemic. So there was a trend that was already being recognized mm-hmm. there. Um, Brad and I've talked a lot on, on the podcast about how the pandemic has uh, kind of accelerated and revealed some things that were already there. I mean, do you have a sense mm-hmm. for, Mm-hmm. What did the pandemic change in in relation to the the role of pastors? Yeah, yeah, a few things. And you're right. We did the research itself, so we were designing the questions that went out um, 
sometime in the late summer, early fall, and then the, the surveys actually went out late fall of 2020 and early 2021. And we even were able to ask some questions of the general population about attitudes toward pastors, attitudes toward mm. um, the church. And I, I think several things changed. I mean, one of the more dramatic ones to me um, was the decline the decline of credibility for the pastor, you know, so mm. so where um, where maybe in previous um, um, eras a pastor would have held a place of at least some sort of maybe not prestige but at least sort of respectability that has really gone down. And so you you, you know we asked one of the questions we asked of the general population was, uh, do you consider the pastor to be a trustworthy source of wisdom? 4% of non-Christians said, yes, absolutely. 18% said, yes, somewhat. So that's, you know, that's a whopping 22%. Then when we ask just, you know, Christians, we slice the data to say, how about just Christians? Man, that number totaled 71%, which means hmm. there's about a third of the people in our churches, Bryce, who are who are gathering with us, listening to us, and kind of saying, yeah, maybe, you know. And I, I think that's a change. And if we want to press on 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 why, gosh, there's a number of factors, but you said the pandemic. I think one of the things the pandemic sort of did was it forced us into this place of, you know, channel surfing, church channel surfing, where if you're going to watch something on YouTube or Facebook, you know, then then many church will do. And mm -hmm. let's see, let, let's watch some other church today. And so it was church channel surfing that that maybe began to undermine some of the work we're trying to do. Hmm. I've wondered if there's also a dynamic, you know, you go back a couple hundred years and pastors were probably the most educated people in their congregations. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the pastor wasn't just the person who was the most knowledgeable when it comes to Bible and theology, but probably just in, in a general sense, you know, I, I'm kind of picturing this like New England Puritan pastor who, you know, goes to Yale and, uh, you know, is generally going to be the most educated person there. And that has completely changed now in our cultural. Well, not in the sense that the pastor is not the least educated person now, but everyone in our congregations has access to any sort of information, yeah. so much information. And so um, the expectation that pastors um, are, you know, not just preachers, counselors, but um, public health experts, you know, um, experts on racial relations and politics mm. and all of these matters. I mean, gosh, that's that's a really complicated situation, right? <laughs> It, it, it absolutely is. And it's funny, you know, you're describing this New England. I mean, that's essentially Jonathan Edwards, you know, the right, first right. person that probably we would have referred to as America's pastor. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I Andrew Root does this in his book, Pastor in a Secular Age. He talks about in the medieval period, you know, the priest sort of gets their authority from a kind of mystical source for mm -hmm. what they can do to the bread and the wine. And then post-Reformation, Enlightenment era. You kind of have education as the as the edge or the source of authority, if you mm. will. So, so there's kind of the sense that the pastor can read in Latin and Greek and Hebrew and all this stuff, you know. And, and in our day, you know, education, it's not quite the same um, now, but but yeah, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. So you have a mystical source, an educational source, somewhere in maybe the 50s onwards to the 80s, 90s. You kind of had the institutional source, which means the size of your church kind of let lent you this aura of of credibility, 
And um, so those were kind of the, 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 the three early sources of authority or credibility, if you will, you know, mystical, educational, institutional. And then now uh, it's, it's maybe social as in social media, yeah. uh, where if someone has a lot of followers or a viral video or a big, you know, um, uh, they're, they're the ones that then have a certain sense of authority. And I think this is problematic on so many levels, Bryce, because, yeah, s- some of those sources of authority are more legitimate than others. Um, but as pastors, we have to say that's not ultimately the source of our authority. The ultimate mm-hmm. source of our authority is Jesus himself. And, 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 and when Jesus called the 12, he called them to be with him. And then he sent them out to have authority over uh, the demonic activity or whatever in, in, in the world. And so there's, there's a very real sense in which we have to reclaim the story and to say, now, now, hang on a minute. That's not actually the source of our authority. That's not actually the source of our credibility. And, and that's part of the recovery work as well. Yeah, so uh, that maybe gets us in, into kind of just give us a, an, a brief overview of what you're doing in the Resilient Pastor book. You mentioned yeah. uh, four challenges specific to pastors and then four that are specific to the church. And they kind of work as a, as a sort of ecosystem of cross pressures. Uh, how mm-hmm. how are these opportunities for pastors and leaders? Maybe just talk us through yeah. what, the, what those challenges and opportunities are. So the first one for the pastor is the challenge of vocation. And I think here, this is the question of what what are we actually called to be? And you mentioned some of those things earlier. Are we supposed to be experts on political stuff or you know uh, all right. these different issues? So that that vocation question is what are we actually called to be and and to do? Uh, what is a pastor? And so I I um, I turned to some some interesting places there. there. There's some solace that we might find in the story of Saint Cuthbert from the 600s, where uh, he hated the administrative work and was always trying to get alone with God. And there is, you know, there's something beautiful about that because, but it's also a reminder that that really our first calling is to Jesus Himself, and to pay attention to what He's doing in the world and the pastoral vocation, as Eugene Peterson uh, wrote, for, you know, for so many years, is about joining God, call, paying attention to what God is doing, and and doing it in a mm. personal and local way. The second challenge is. Uh, the challenge of spirituality, which is about how do we actually renew our own relationship with God in the midst of, uh, in the midst of so many pressing demands on our time. The third challenge is the challenge of credibility, which we've talked a little bit about. The fourth one is the challenge of, um, uh, excuse me. The third one is actually the challenge of relationships, which is how does a pastor cultivate meaningful relationships and not just. You know, in ministry work, Bryce, as you know, it, there's this illusion of intimacy because we get parachuted in these deep, intense, intimate moments with people, and then we're out. Um, you know, we're not we're not yeah. walking with them day by day necessarily. Um, sometimes we are, but a lot of times we're not. Mm. And so, but how, how do we have actual relationships of reciprocity and mutuality? So, the challenge of relationships. That fourth one is is the challenge of of credibility, which we've talked about. We can pause at any point if you want me to. Or you want me to press on, or yeah, yeah. I mean, the the relationships um, uh, part of it. I mean, it is interesting because you mentioned pastors are in this kind of these deeply intimate moments with people, often at some of the best times in their lives and some of the worst times in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there also the other side of the coin, which is it's complicated to navigate relationships? friendships as a pastor. Um, you know, some people have talked about this kind of this one-legged stool concept of, yeah. of all of your, your, your work relationships, your church relationships, your friendships are all 
wrapped up in a single context in ministry. That's exactly it, Bryce. And and I think that's problematic when all of our relationships are wrapped up in that single context. And oftentimes as pastors, we don't give ourselves the permission to have relationships that are outside the church. We kind of make the mm-hmm. church our entire galaxy or our entire ecosystem, whichever metaphor you'd like. And I, I think it's a problem because we need more than that. And the relationships in the church, they're, they're tricky because they're asymmetrical, meaning there's a power differential there. We're, we're, we're still the pastor. Every time mm-hmm. you walk in the room, it's a little bit different. Power has entered the room when you come in the room. And so you have to be aware of that. It's not exactly the same. Um, so it's asymmetrical. And then secondly, it's, it's non-reciprocal. Um, not always. I mean, I think there are a lot mm-hmm. of relationships where there is give and take, but it's just generally it's not the same. So the pastors who are doing this best, and by the way, you know, I partnered with Barna and doing some of the survey stuff, but I on my own went and did some focus groups with pastors in the US, Canada, and the UK so that mm-hmm. I could hear their stories about this stuff. And and the pastors who are doing this well, who who aren't feeling lonely and isolated, most of them pointed to friendships that that predated their a particular ministry assignment mm. right now. So maybe mm. friends from seminary or college or hometown or whatever yeah. that they've they've made a point to keep in touch with. And, and yeah. that's what it takes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, how about some of the the opportunities <laughs> of, before we move on to the, 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 next, yeah. the next set, but like, yeah. what, what are some yeah. of the opportunities related to vocation, spirituality, relationships, and credibility? Well, the, the opportunity with the challenge of vocation is, man... If we can remember why we signed up for this, that our first call is to Jesus himself. And I, I talk in the book about that scene at the end of John's Gospel, John 21, where Jesus is renewing Peter's call. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And I, I think the opportunity for us is to uh, rekindle that first love with Jesus, to remember that that he's not asking us, do you love this church? Do you love your job? Do you love your job description? Hmm. Um, but ultimately, you know, do you love me? Uh, can we start there? So I think that's that's the opportunity with the vocation, with spirituality. Man, there's an opportunity here for us to slow down. Mm. So many people who work with pastors, Ruth Haley Barton, Peter Scazzaro, I, I mean, all these all these folks, they're, they're all trying to get us to do the same thing, to embrace silence and solitude, <laughs> to pay attention to our soul, <laughs> yeah. you know, and there's there's an opportunity there to carve out room for that. With relationships, mm. I, I think... You know, I suggest in the chapter that we need a constellation of relationships. We need different kinds of people in our lives. Yes, we need the the peer who's, you know, maybe a fellow pastor around the country. And I, I'm in a Zoom group with three other pastors from around mm-hmm. the country. We talk once a month. Yes, we need the friends, the kind of close friends. They may not be in our same vocation, but there's a close brotherhood or sisterhood or whatever. I've got those in my life. But we also need kind of a, a, a sage type of figure, you know. We we need a Gandalf who can mm. come along the way and and give us wisdom. Maybe a few of those voices. We need some authority figures in our life who can tell us no when we're pushing too hard or trying to run too fast. Uh, and, and then we need mm. we need some healers in our life. We need we need counselors. We need therapists. We need spiritual directors. And it's 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 sadly it's a very low percentage of pastors who actually make room for regular spiritual direction or counseling. And I I've I just re-engaged my own time with my spiritual director. I took a few years break and I realized the lack of that. I realized the gap in that. Mm. So maybe the the invitation, the opportunity is uh invest in those relationships because 
because man, the best gift you can give to your churches, to your spouse, to your families is a, is a healthy and alive you. And then the final one, credibility, mm-hmm. man, the opportunity. I, I really don't think, you know, we, we've done a lot of, a lot of damage, um, to our own credibility. We've misused power. We've misused authority. Uh, and we need to own that. I think part of the opportunity there is confession is to say, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even I'm sorry on behalf of what people have experienced in churches and, and, and pastors. But the opportunity, man, is is actually when, when we steward power like Jesus did, when we, um, John 13, Jesus knowing that the Father had entrusted everything to his hands, um, removed his robe and began washing their feet. When we exercise power like that, people actually are mm. moved by that. So mm. I, I don't think we ought to do that as a PR stunt, you know, in, in order to try to, <laughs> in order to try to reclaim yeah. our credibility. But, you know, we talked about the different sources of authority. If we remember that the source of our authority is Jesus, and then we can say, now Jesus help me use it like you did. Man, that's that's the goal, and maybe a restoration of credibility will result. But but at the end mm. of the day, the the biggest win is we've started to lead like Jesus. We've started to love like Jesus. Mm. And that's a beautiful thing. We'll get right back to the podcast in just a minute. But before we do, I want to ask you a question: Where are you hearing the voices that actually calm your nervous system? focus you on Jesus, and help you lean into the changes around you with love, mercy, and kindness? Obviously, the answer is Twitter. No, but seriously, where? You need to find a way to turn up the volume on those voices. If our podcast does that for you, take 30 seconds now to sign up for our new newsletter. It will update you every time a new episode comes out, and I hope that's a small step towards turning up the volume on the right things in your life. Gosh, I mean, there's so much more we could we could dive into on that that last the credibility piece because it, I mean the authenticity is so important there too, um, because you kind of even uh, hinted at this, but like uh, you could do you could embrace vulnerability servant leadership as a tactic, which is ultimately <laughs> manipulative, and and maybe that's yes. what people are reacting to. Uh, that contributes to the loss of credibility in the first place. Exactly, exactly right, man. It, it it can't be a stunt or a gimmick. And I think credibility is a result, not a goal. You know, there there are things that kind of work that way, where mm-hmm. where you aim at this and then you get this as well. You get something different as well. You you aim at um, Lord, make me cruciform, make me Christ like, make me make me like you. And what you get as a result may be credibility, but it it man, it may not be. Um, they rejected yeah. Jesus too, but I don't think, I don't think what people reject ab- about Jesus is his humility and servant leadership. You know, I don't think that's the part of Jesus yeah. that people are, are, are railing yeah. against. Okay. So four challenges, opportunities for pastors, but, um, what are the four, four churches? Yeah. So the first one is the challenge of worship. The question of why, why do we actually gather? What are, what are we doing here? What, what are we supposed to and Bryce, that's the that's one of the big questions as as we're trying to kind of find our footing after the pandemic. Why do yeah. we gather? Um, so, you know, the the challenge here is that that maybe people have been sort of malformed um, in terms of uh, what they think the gathering is for. But the opportunity is 
we get to remind them that actually the, the gift of the church is when we all show up with a word, with a song, with an encouragement, with a prayer for, for one another. Um, and, and the church as the temple, the church is the body, the church is the household, whichever New Testament metaphor you choose, mm. it requires you. It, it, we, it needs you and me. And, and so there's an opportunity here to actually remind people we're not asking you to come for the show, come for the big event. Um, uh, you know, when, when you come, come yeah. for one another. Um, the second one, the challenge of, of, of formation is kind of related to this. Like the challenge of formation is how, how do we actually become like Jesus? And you, you mentioned the pandemic as a revealer. Man, one of the things that revealed was kind of this discipleship crisis in the church that maybe Absolutely. has been going, It's Absolutely. you know, like it's been yeah. brewing for a long time and we just discovered the the rot in the middle, you know, the rottenness in the core. Yeah. And and so we've got to rethink some of this stuff. And I don't mean anything. I don't mean like, oh, we're going to find the silver bullet that now we've solved the discipleship thing. I don't mean that. But I think we need to really take seriously um, that attendance is not the same thing as discipleship, engagement, serving. Uh, that, that's helpful. Mm. But really what we got to get at is, again, this cruciform teaching, this Christ-centered teaching a Sermon on the Mount kind of stuff. My friend uh, Sky Jatani has a series of books called "What If Jesus Was Serious." You know, I love that. That that that's the kind of that's the kind of discipleship. Like, what if Jesus yeah. was serious about what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? You know, and uh, yeah. what if and, he really and, and, meant sell your possessions <laughs> and give the money to the poor? <laughs> oh man, I tell you, making me squirm. You know, and. And 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 then to be an apprenticing community to one another. This is one of the chapters in the book that I go back to Cyprian and Carthage and North Africa and we in the 200s, 300s, and we start to gain these examples to say the early Christians took this stuff seriously. Mm-hmm. And what can we learn from them? How can we be an apprenticing community to one another? Um so anyway, that's the first two. And then and then the third one is the challenge of unity, which Man, we could talk about that for a little while, but I'll just flag the high points. Uh, I, I, I picked two things that are really threatening unity today. One in America is the different ways we define racism. So there's a big gap here in how mm-hmm. uh, white Christians see the racial situation versus how black Christians see it. And this is not an issue of, of, of social debate or political debate. It's, first of all, an issue of church unity. Um, mm-hmm. So how do we how do we try to listen to someone else who's my brother or sister in Christ who's experiencing the world differently than I do? That's mm-hmm. one threat to unity. The other one is this kind of insidious cancer of of, of nationalism um, that is this is pulling us apart because um, of the way it prioritizes its allegiances. The fourth challenge for the church is the challenge of mission, and that's the question of. Man, that's the question of what is what is our mission? Are are we mm. quote unquote pastor just preach the gospel? And what, what is that? Is that getting souls saved? Is right. it any kind of care work? Is it any kind of justice work? Is it any kind of uh, engagement in, in the community? So those are the challenges. And of course, each of them come with opportunities to say, we can reclaim a bigger vision here. We can reclaim a biblical mm. um, um, a mandate here for, for all of mm. these things. So as I'm hearing you talk, I mean, this is such a helpful, just kind of succinct four handholds. I'm curious though about how these are challenges for the church, um, mm-hmm. as as distinct from challenges for pastors. Because hearing what you just talked through as a pastor, what it feels like to me is, 
and here are four challenges that I as a pastor need to lead my church in. <laughs> yeah, right? that's great, Bryce. I like that. I, that's a good question. I, I, my hope I, is actually these four chapters, every Christian needs to regain or recapture, recover. You know, we've mm. been talking about recovery here with resilience. Recover a, a, a fuller vision of this. So if the church could understand, for example, why we gather in worship and why a gathering matters, whether it's big or small, whatever, what what a weekly sort of rhythm of gathering means to the church, has meant to the church. Yeah, the pastor has a role in kind of teaching this and all that, but my hope is that all of us as Christians recover that. And, Mm -hmm. And same thing for the mission of the church. I mean, Maybe pastors would get fewer emails from people saying, Pastor, just preach the gospel. Maybe they'd maybe they'd, we'd get more people signing up when we say, hey, we're going to do a cleanup project in the community or whatever it might be, um, because they understand the kingdom vision of mission is Luke 4. It's Isaiah 61. It's a bigger picture than just, um, hey, we need, a, we need to get more transactions and conversions um, mm. made here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Okay, so you write about um, the declining influence and, and effectiveness of Christian belief mm. in our culture, and you asked this question. You said, can, can you enjoy the fruit of Christianity, arguably the, the, the gifts mm-hmm. of Christendom, uh, without the root of Christian faith and practice? To live in a Christ-haunted world is to live where most of the fruit of the Spirit are prized as virtues, but the testimony of the spirit that Christ is Lord is scorned. And gosh, I mean, I, I feel like that just hits the nail on the head where we are. And this has been uh, such a big part of what Brad and I have been exploring on this podcast. I, I'm curious though, like what do pastors need to be in a time where our culture wants the fruit of the gospel without the roots. I mean, does that require something different of pastors now than 50 or maybe even 10 years ago? Yeah, I think it does, Bryce. I think this is a, uh, you know, relatively to, you know, to sort of the history of the church, it's a relatively new phenomenon where uh, we like these sort of social goods, but we've detached them. And I think it's, you know, it's going on in, in, in the wider culture. Uh, it's going on in, in Western societies where we want some of the virtues, like we want humility in our leaders, for example, you know, um, mm-hmm. but, but we don't want all the virtues. We don't necessarily want the sexual ethics that Paul out, outlines, for example. And so uh, we don't want the mm-hmm. lordship of Jesus over our money, uh, for example. But, but hey, uh, we, we, we do think, you know, gentleness or whatever, mutuality, you know. So uh, it, it's challenging because I think what, what the pastoral task is to say, hey, isn't it great that you love this? W- would you like to know where this came from? And, and maybe one of the tactics, I'm not saying this is like the only way to do it, but maybe one of the approaches, at least one that I've found um, helpful in my pastoral work is to say, historically, do you know where this concern came from? You know, hmm. so I, I, I love, I love the uh, secular British historian, Tom Holland. He, he writes about this in his book, Dominion, where he says, look, the, the Me Too movement or even the Black Lives Matter movement. Right, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right there on my desk. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Right. I mean, you, you, we, to kind of say we wouldn't care about the exploitation of women uh, if it had yeah. not been for the Apostle Paul. And, and, and it's important to be able to say to people, even when Christians fail, and they do, and even when church leaders fail, and they do, 
we fail by our own standards, not by someone else's standards. Like we, we fall short of the very kind of vision that, that Christianity introduced to the world. Um, another beautiful book called Bullies and Saints by an Australian historian, John Paul Dixon. He uses this wonderful metaphor of uh, a Bach cello um, suite, you know, Bach cello suite in G, the famous, da, 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 you know, and, and he, he, mm-hmm. he tried a few months to kind of learn this and he tried to perform it in front of an audience and it was, it, it was just awful. You know, everyone's like holding their ears. It just <laughs> sounded so bad. And then he brought on a proper, you know, concert cellist to perform the piece and people were in awe and they, you know, standing ovation, all this stuff. And his point was you could write off Bach because of a poor performance, but you would be missing mm-hmm. out on the beauty of Bach. And, mm. and that's what I think we're trying to say to our world, to the culture around us, is don't write off Jesus because Christians have performed the song poorly. But really, mm. in, in regards to your question, it's almost like people have hung on to a part of the melody. And we're trying to say, you like that? I've got more for you. There's more to the song mm. uh, than, than just those few notes. Uh, man, that, Glenn, that that's just so beautiful. I, I really appreciate some of the uh, those metaphors. Um, so I'm curious if you could just maybe help us get practical here. What is, yeah? Where do we start? You know, what's maybe one personal practice that a pastor who's listening can can begin to grow in resilience? For example, I mean, I'm just thinking about throughout your book and even in our conversation uh, today. I mean, you're quoting. Um, some 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 big thinkers, right? You're quoting in the book Augustine, Charles Taylor, uh, Tom Holland, Jamie Smith. You've thought, you've read widely. Where do we get started? Um, what practices can help pa- a pastor kind of reacquaint him or herself with um, some of the, yeah. the ancient wisdom that we need? I I mean I I hope that the book awakens the appetite for that, but I hope I I am certainly aware that may, maybe it feels overwhelming and it feels like I just have no idea how to you know you know how to access all of this. Mm. Um, and I think the first thing I would say, I mean maybe the, the 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 first step to take is to carve out some regular time in your month, maybe one day a month, where you're alone with God and you're able to spend maybe the first half of that day in silence, solitude, journaling, rekindling your own love for Jesus, as we talked about. And then maybe in the afternoon, Mm -hmm. that's your time to study and study for something that's not related to the sermon. I know that feels like Mm -hmm. a luxury, but man, if we could start one day a month, just one day a month um, doing that, where you, you set aside that, because we've got to replenish the well, we've got to sharpen the saw to use that old Stephen Covey kind of, you know, phrase, but, but, (laughs) Uh, I, I've, I have found like after a season of giving out and content, 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 I, I need time to kind of read and take in mm. with information that I may not have an immediate use for, you know. Mm. So many, many pastors have had seminary in their background. I know some don't, but many, many have. Uh, study can be a spiritual discipline. Study can be a, a spiritual practice where we, we take a book, maybe we read on a theme and we get a few different books. And, and I, I'm not in, interested in how quickly you, you burn through a book. It, it's almost more like if you get 30 minutes a day, if you get an afternoon, a month, uh, take some good jur- notes in your journal about what you're reading, see what mm. it provokes. That, that sort of work will, will replenish us. And then I think, you know, Bryce, I mean, the work you guys are doing w- with this show, I think, and with other um, resources out there, there are some 
there are some voices that are curating the conversation for us. And that's mm -hmm. helpful because we can't all go to primary sources, right? We can't, we can't right. all sort of read everything all that. You just can't do it. So, so finding some trustworthy guides that can say, you know, this person, Jamie Smith can help me understand the secular age mm -hmm. a little bit. And right. so-and-so is a good voice on this. And uh, Preston Sprinkle maybe is a good voice on the sexuality stuff. And so you, you, yeah. you kind of find these guides, carve out some time and, um, but you have to prioritize that. Don't don't let the tyranny of the urgent um, just keep us moving from one church service or church event to the next. Um, that's that's when our output is greater than our input. That's a recipe for burnout. Oh yeah, uh, thank you. That's <laughs> that maybe hits a little too close to home, but that's that's a helpful <laughs> uh, metric right there. Yeah. So let's maybe um, pull back the curtain a little bit. Why should we care if pastors and churches are resilient? Maybe um, one of the really interesting things that we've discovered about our audience is that we have a, a large number of listeners who I would say are very skeptical of the institutional church. Um, yeah. uh, maybe because yeah. they've got uh, church hurt in their past. Maybe they would yeah. call themselves uh, nuns. Um, mm -hmm. Why should that sort of a person uh, care about the health, the resilience of, uh, of pastors, even if they're not really sure that they believe any of it anymore. <laughs> I, you know, I understand, uh, if they don't <laughs> and, and I understand the pain and I understand, um, again, you know, I, I'm, I'm at a church, my, you know, six years in, we had ex the experience of a moral failure and, and mm -hmm. I, man, I, I get it when people walk away, we've, I've certainly walked with a lot of people in our own city who that was their experience. And, and so my, my first uh, impulse is not to say, well, come on, you, you ought to care. Um, but I think somewhere along the way, we all need uh, an icon or two. And I mean this in a very sacred history kind of sense, church history kind of sense. So an idol is the thing that you worship becomes the object of your allegiance and worship and all that. But an icon in, in Christian practice, an icon is someone that you see through and you see through them to mm. the glory of God. You see through them to the love of God. Or maybe to say it another way, the love of God shines through them um, to mm. you. Um, so, so if this, you know, let's go back to John Paul Dixon's metaphor of, of box, cello, you know, suite. If we have any hope of enjoying beautiful music in the world, we need some really competent performers. We need people who will devote themselves to the practice and the craft so that we can that that cello sweet piece can live on today. And mm. and I think that's the same thing. If we think Jesus, if they, if we think there's anything good and beautiful and true about Jesus, and we want the Jesus way and the Jesus movement to live on, uh, it's going to live on through His people. It's going to live on through the mm. church and. And again, the, the think of these old cathedrals with stained glass windows for the light to shine through them. Those those panels need to be polished and cleaned and clear, and not mm. cracked or muddied or broken. So we should all wish for that. We should all wish for the church to to be at its best, because when it is, then the beauty and love and mercy and wonder of God are flooding like light into our dark world. So I, I've got to ask, you've mentioned it a, a couple of times here, but um, you write even in the book about hearing the devastating news that Ted Haggard, who was the senior pastor at New Life, uh, abused his power and authority. And, you know, that happened in, in, in a fairly prominent 
way, I, w- I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, well, mm-hmm. m- well, many of our listeners are pastors or lay leaders. Like I've said, many are, are I would say, very skeptical. So how do you, as a pastor, both sort of call out gross injustice and the abuse of power in the church when, when it happens, but also um, do that in, in a posture of repentance and hold, holding out repentance. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking even yeah. of many pastors that we've talked about this, but have had to tread these lines about politics or how the pandemic seems to have made everything into an us versus them fight. I mean, how do you, how do you navigate there? So many of those just issues where it feels like there's a both and there's, um, there's a, there's a sense of everything being fraught, no matter, no matter where you land. Mm. Yeah, it, it is a tricky thing, Bryce. And I think um, you are, on the one hand, trying to hold power accountable and speak the truth to power. But I think there's also, you know, if we believe in the gospel, we have to believe in the power of repentance mm-hmm. and mercy and forgiveness. I think what's different when a leader falls is there is a broken trust. And so, unfortunately, in, in, in church practice, it's very people are very quick to want to reinstate a leader because of their gifts mm. and they love their gifts. And so they say, well, let's just forgive them and, and get them back and, and, and all this stuff. And theologically, what I believe about this, Bryce, is that in the Old Testament, you know, God anointed kings. And so they, you know, they had this sort of thing. And so there's all these flawed kings in the Old Testament. People always say, what about David? What about David? But in the New Testament, everybody's anointed. Everybody's mm. filled with the Spirit. Everyone's received the Holy Spirit. So how do you get leadership in the New Testament? Well, every time Paul lists uh, leaders uh, or, or titles, offices, if you will, he lists qualifications. And the qualifications always have to do with, essentially, are they living lives that are trustworthy? Are they living lives that the community can trust them? It, he's not appealing to a sense of charisms, the gifts of the Spirit. He's not, he's not saying, appoint these as elders because they've got so many charisms, they've got a lot of gifts, or appoint these people as leaders because they're, they're so you know, anointed. He doesn't say that. Uh, he says, these are the people that should be your leaders if they're, you know, they're trustworthy in their home, they're trustworthy in their personal life. So trust is a big part of the answer here. So a leader, when they fall, can be forgiven, of course, by God, can be forgiven by people. Um, but we should be slow to reinstate them because it's it's really about trust. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. Um, so last question. So for the listener who, who's, who's paying attention here with us, who maybe isn't, uh, is a Christian, but not a pastor, what's, what's one thing that sort of a, a Christian might do? to support or encourage their pastor or, 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 or just in a general mm. sense um, to be supportive yeah. of, of the church. Pray for your pastors. I mean, I think, I, I, I don't believe prayer is kind of the lesser work. I think prayer is the greater work and, and to remember them in your prayers. And when you pray for them, that, that helps you even think about ways uh, to come alongside them. I don't. I'm. I. I'm not big on kind of the on uh, hyper honor culture stuff of you know f- you know serve your pastor. I, I think. I think what <laughs> I would rather say is join them in the work to say, hey, what are you seeing God is up to in our church, and how can I join in? How can I come alongside you? And they might point you to the children's ministry and say, this is how you can serve is come alongside and serve in the nursery, you know. Um, but but I think an eagerness to join them as they're trying to join God in his work in that particular community. That's 
that's the greatest joy. I mean, all, all of us, we just don't want to be alone in it. I think the gift that Paul had were all the friendships, the co-laborers, uh, he called them in the gospel. And he, his letters are full of these names. Um, be one of those. Yeah. Be one of those names. Be one of those names um, that, that, that pastors would name because you joined them in the work. Yeah, that's fantastic. Echo that uh, all the way. <laughs> As if I put my pastor hat back on uh, and not take my podcaster hat off, I uh, would totally agree with you. Glenn, this has been really rich. Thanks so much for taking the time to to talk with us um, today. If people want to connect with you, uh, how, how can they do that? What's a, what's a good way to yeah. follow up with Glenn Peckham? Yeah, well, on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram, uh, my handle is just at gpakiam, G-P-A-C-K-I-A-M. Um, but this Resilient Pastor thing, you know, it's the book, but we've also launched a podcast and a cohort. So we're doing some city roundtables, trying to convene pastors around tables with each other. So if, if they went to theresilientpastor.com, they could find all that info. Maybe they want to find more resources uh, some of them are free. Some of them are, you know, the book obviously is a purchase and all that. But yeah. uh, we'd love to just keep keep strengthening the church. Absolutely. Well, that's great. We'll uh, link all of that down in the show notes below. And Glenn, thanks again so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Bryce. Thanks for listening. If you found Everything Just Changed compelling, please rate and review the show so that more people can find it. The podcast is hosted by Bryce Hales and Brad Edwards. It's edited by Nathan Michelle. Theme music is by Denny Rankin and David Rigel designed our logo. We look forward to talking to you next time on Everything Just Changed.